0: I used to find my brother and he used to say, Pete, better days will come. You won't feel like it because it's so far away, but better times will come. And I hold my money in Bitcoin because any savings I have that for the next 10, 20 years, I'm not gonna hold them in the pound. It's melting away. I hold it in Bitcoin. I am perfectly happy with the adoption rate of Bitcoin. If you had overnight adoption of Bitcoin, it would be chaos.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. Today's guest is a guy called Peter McCormack. What a story, okay? He hosts the most successful Bitcoin podcast in the world at the moment called What Bitcoin Did. Not only has he made a great success out of the Bitcoin investing world, but on top of that, he went and bought his hometown football club, with I think is just such a romantic story. He's been through some pain, he's been through some challenges, and I promise you the ending was so happy, it made my heart warm. You're going to love this episode. Let's tune in for Peter, talking all things Bitcoin, football, passion, and how you overcome life's challenges. Cue the music. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi, bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Okay, Peter, thanks so much for coming to join us today on the podcast. You're my second of 17 interviews while I'm in London. And as you're a podcaster and a really successful one, I'm sure we've got lots in common and lots to discuss about that. Maybe some tips and tricks you can help me with.
0: How many a day are you doing?
1: How many a day? Yeah. What's the most you'll do in one day? Four a day. Wow. Okay. So I've got four today. So you're number two.
0: So I will do max three a day yeah. and try and keep it to two. I don't think people realise how
1: mentally draining an interview is. Oh, yeah. Like I'm knackered in between them. People people sending me messages from Dubai going, oh, it's so exciting that you're going to do that stuff. And I'm like, you do four interviews in a day and see what you're like at the end of the day. Do you do you have to have a, like a whole plan? Because I do. I have to have a whole plan whereby it's,
0: okay, every day we've got interviews, I don't go out drinking the night before. Yeah. I make sure I'm in bed early. Yeah. Because, you know, it's like when you're driving, you get tired. I can get that in a podcast interview. You mm-hmm. feel a bit tired. So I have to do that. I have to have a gap between interviews. mm mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I've got an intense one that I know has come in. I'll have a two, three-hour gap, mm-hmm. and um, uh, sometimes I'll, I'll literally say, to "Everyone, leave me alone." I'm gonna, can I swear? Yeah, leave me the fuck alone. I'm gonna go and chill, and I go and chill <laughs> for like two hours and just almost like meditate, and because it's mentally draining. Uh-huh, for yep. a day, man. Wow.
1: Well, again, I've got this period <laughs> of time that I've got to get it done. And when I was in America last year in Hollywood, we we filmed every day there, and and literally we had. We're a 12-hour time difference from Dubai as well. So I get I get there and I'm like, no worries, it's going to be easy. <laughs> and I've got this 12-hour time difference plus this stuff going on. So, yeah, quite intense. But I love it. This is, yeah. you know, out of all the things I do, all the businesses I own, everything I'm involved with, people say, what do you love the most? And it's like, I love this. It's the best job in the world. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, I, I got into it because I I was in between jobs. I um So I used to work in advertising in London. And we'd built this quite successful agency, with thirty-five people in Covent Garden, it was doing very well. Got married, then my marriage broke, like fell apart three months in, and uh, I was a mess. And I stopped going to work, and the agency collapsed. So I took a year off work. My mum got sick; she had cancer, and she went vegan. So I went vegan with her, and then I ended up discovering this podcast called Rich Roll. Do you know Rich Roll? Yeah, yeah, vegan ultra athlete. <coughs> I Google him, and he's got this uh, event in Italy. And so I phone up, they've got one place left. I was like, right, I think I need to be on this. So I go to, uh fly to Pisa. I end up in uh, Florence, um, just outside of Florence. And um, yes, I'm on this week-long retreat doing yoga and eating vegan food. And and at the end of it, uh, Rich is, because I'd been listening to his podcast when I was running. And Rich was like, oh, if you, any of you in LA, look me up. And it's I think it was like a, a nice goodbye. I get back and I book a flight and I'm like, hi, I'm here. And I just said to him, I said, I want your job. Your job seems brilliant. You, you basically get paid to talk to smart people every day. How do you do it? And he said, buy this equipment. There's a course by this guy who runs Smart Passive Income about how to podcast. So I order the stuff on Amazon the next day. I watch the course. I phone up a guy called Luke Martin, a crypto guy, and I'm like, can I uh, make an interview with you? And I made my first show four days later. That's it. And here we are, nearly six years later, 666 episodes in, and I'm talking to you.
1: Wow. Uh, that's awesome You just started it like that it's Complete luck Complete just random See I didn't want to do A podcast at first And some someone kept persuading me Do it do it do it And I was like What's the point It takes a load of time Costs a load of money What's the point of all of that And I remember the first He said the first episode You're doing a piece, piece To camera on your own It's 20 minutes And I was like what am I going to talk about for 20 minutes, for Christ's sake? It's like, don't worry, we'll work it out. And I did that, and then the first few guests that I got on were people that I knew. And so I had these really interesting conversations, and it was probably by episode five or six, I'm like, this is fun. It is good, isn't it? And then I met a guy called Ken Rakowski. Okay. So Ken Rakowski did the first ever podcast. What? 1996. Okay. And so he's done 20,000 episodes. 20,000 episodes? Oh, we, we've got nothing to yeah, complain about. Yeah, we've got nothing on Ken, yeah. Oh my God. So Ken, and what Ken said to me, he said, don't think about it just one way. He said, of course, you build an audience and you can create advertising, that's it. He said, but don't always think about it that way. He said, he goes, you can have a really successful podcast that has only one listener. And I'm like, right, how do you mean? He said, well, look, imagine you want to line up the 10 most important companies that you want to do business with, or the 100 most important companies. Imagine having the CEO of each of those companies on your podcast for an hour and a half to learn about their story, build rapport with them, get to know them better. He said, you do that, two weeks later, you phone them up and you say, can I buy you a coffee? Is he going to have a coffee with you? And I'm like, I don't know. He goes, of course he is. He has a coffee with you. Now you've got a chance to sell your products or services. He said, so it's a great prospecting tool as well. And imagine if you just spent all all of the time interviewing, because people won't, if you're selling something, they're not always going to have a meeting with you. They're going to go, no, I'm not interested. Yep. But everyone's got an ego. He says, if you say, he said, say the following, I'd love you to come on the podcast to inspire my audience the way that you inspired me. Flatter them. <laughs> and, they, and they'll all go, well, oh, maybe I can do a bit of inspiring. <laughs> so, what, so you've been doing it for about four years? Four years, yeah. One a week for four years. So it have been...
0: Right. Okay. So it's,
1: this is what I'll do by mistake. I'll end
0: up interviewing you now. It's so all right. We'll do it together. <laughs> we have fun. Um, okay. So you've been doing it for about four years. Have you found you've trained for it during it? I've trained. Like if you're an athlete, yeah, you train.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, if you're an artist, you practice. Do you feel like you've just naturally progressed or have you made a conscious
1: decision to study the art of podcasting and try and improve? So this is, this is where I think I had some skills to start with. Right, okay. So I come from a financial planning background. And so my job was always to really understand someone's situation. And once I understood it, try and find a solution to it. But like I had to really, really... And I used to have, have uncomfortable conversations. Add that to the fact that my mum thinks I've got no social filter. (laughs) And so I'm 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 not fearful of asking questions that I think are relevant based upon the conversation we're having. So add that natural curiosity to this no social filter and this desire to really want to understand something and not actually being that academic myself means that I don't have any fear pushing down a certain path just so that I can learn. And that's what I found the audience quite like about what I do.
0: Yeah, because I found myself going through a few phases whereby the first interviews I did, I would turn up with this list of questions and just essentially read them, wait for an answer, read it. <laughs> yeah. And so then I was like, no, this is shit. So then I threw them away and I said, I'm going to try and do it without anything in front of me yeah, and try and, um, try and just kind of a little bit. And that was a challenge, but it was good because you learn the art of conversation. Mm-hmm. But occasionally I would have a, a blank. And so the only Oh really? Yeah, I had a way of dealing with that. I used to say, oh, right. I just need the toilet quick and I'd go in. It's only happened a handful of times, but that's how I got through that. And now I have a hybrid of the two. But I spent I I can't just listen to a podcast anymore as just a listener. I listen to it as a podcaster thinking, what have they done there? That's kind of interesting. Like Joe Rogan, I've learned so much from him. Just listening to his art of conversation, thinking, what can I learn from them? So I kind of felt like almost like I've trained myself for it as well. Interesting
1: I think Joe Rogan When I I watch and listen to his content I find that he's He's definitely very well read Yes He's studying lots of subjects over the years And so you'll find him dipping into an Elon Musk Or whatever it may be An Ash Whatever it may be interview And he'll know quite a bit about that general subject
0: Yeah And he does that on top of running a comedy club Being a comedian An MMA presenter I'm like Does this guy sleep? (laughs) When does he fit this all in?
1: Yeah, and those long-form interviews as well, those conversations, I mean, they're hours. hours.
0: Yeah, three hours, four hours. It's like,
1: if I if I have a four-hour conversation with someone, that's it, I need to go to bed.
0: Yeah, I'm done. Done. Mentally done. But I don't know, <clears> man, I feel very fortunate to have got to this point, like you have. Like, work for me today was to drive down to London, sit across from you, make a new friend and have a conversation. I mean, how cool is that?
1: <laughs> Amazing, Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting when you when you think about podcasting and, and 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 the journey of most podcasts is that most people don't persevere. Yeah, they give up. I don't know what the stats are. I know there's gazillions of podcasts, but I don't know what the stats are on people that have done more than 25 episodes.
0: Oh, isn't it somewhere like 90% give up in the first 12 episodes or something? so it's, it's it's a high, it's a high figure. And you've probably had it where people have said to you, Oh, I'm thinking of starting a podcast. What are your tips? And I always say to them, okay, firstly, start, don't overthink it just get any equipment and make that first episode and get it out there. Two, patience. Most people are going to give up in the first kind of few months. Do not even think about making money for the first two years. You might, mm-hmm. but do not think about that. Yeah. And that's my second one. I can't remember what my third point usually is. Oh yeah, just just be yourself, but we can get into that separately. Mm. But the second point being is that most people give up. I, and I've seen multiple people do it and give up after they've spoken to me. And it's what Rich says to me, because Rich became a bit of a mentor, Rich Roll, and... He said to me, he said, I've had so many people over the years come to me and say, oh, Rich, how do I do this? And I tell them and they don't do it or they give up. You're the one who's just gone for it and done it. And it's it's just that patience, like relentless year after year, turning up, not missing. Like if you come out on a Thursday, not missing a Thursday, or if it's twice a week, Tuesday,
1: Thursday, you just don't miss an episode. Mm -hmm. So people can rely on you. And that's hard work. Mm, It is, it is. I'm glad I persevered. I mean, and the people I've met along the way have just been incredible. Yeah. And now we have you and there's people here listening and watching this. And like, who the hell is Peter McCullough? Yeah, I
0: know, I know all these famous people you have. <laughs> Who's this moron you've got on? I've never heard of him. So you've
1: got this massively successful poster. Let's talk about football. Let's talk about your backstory. And let's make sure that everyone here today that's listening and to this and watching this, okay, knows what a cool dude you are. <laughs> so so, so where, where, did, where did it start? what the podcast life <laughs> where did it start for you to your podcast is four years old but before you were doing podcasts oh, nearly it would be six years and six level. years old so mine's yeah. four years before you were doing that what were you doing
0: I worked in advertising so uh so wasn't really great at school um parents sent me to a private school but you know my dad was an engineer my mom was a nurse so they couldn't afford it they really scraped by and you know being the you know my dad i don't think my dad would be ashamed if i said this but essentially the poor kid in a rich school yeah, that that gives you an ambition because you see all the money around you and what people have and you think right okay well you know i want i want similar things i'm uh, i'm going to work hard so you know starts with one paper round and then two and then i can handle three and then get your first job at a shop and but i really wanted to work in the music industry i set up a fanzine when i was about 16 so i used to interview bands and Print it at my mate Tom's dad's uh, estate agents, and then I'd go to the uh, concerts and sell it, and and that was really cool. I got to interview some very cool bands, uh, old bands like Korn and Pantera and Slayer, which was very cool. And then uh, then I went to uni to study music industry management because I wanted to work in the music industry, but actually it was a Mickey Mouse course, and, uh, absolute garbage, and kind of fell out of love with the music industry because of that um but what i did do is i wanted to build i wanted to turn the fanzine into a website and i couldn't afford to pay someone so i just bought a book on html and learned to program websites oh, did you? yeah so that's i got into that and then what happened was my landlord when i was at university in high Wickham, needed a website and he said he'll pay me 500 pounds i was like oh my god that's what i earn every kind of two months in my weatherspoons job so i built that and and i think my second one was a recruitment company i got paid two grand uh and then this like a weird chain of events happened um i met uni in my uh start of my third year there's a knock at the door and it's my brother and my sister had been knocked down by a police car and she was in hospital in cambridge and Adderbrooks in, in uh, uh in a coma and so he, he drives me down to cambridge and for the next 2 months we're there you know she comes out and she's relatively fine now but i missed so much uni i i couldn't go back so i was like I can defer for a year so i deferred and 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 then i was like well what are we going to do for the rest of the year and it was during the dot-com boom so i um applied for a, a freelancer's job online to go and program html and this they were called ecountries.com got in touch and said look we need a programmer can you come down to london i was like yeah and they said but we can only pay you 900 pound a week <laughs> <laughs> and i'm thinking oh, all right i'll, I'll, I'll suffer that I said, this is unbelievable i'm 900 a week. 20 years old so you're talking 24 years ago as well so I was flush and so I did that and then I carried on contracting and I just said to my dad I said dad I don't want to work in the music industry by the way I was failing my course pretty much anyway I was gonna end up with a you know, second um, and I'm getting paid a grand a week to do this I'm gonna carry on And he wasn't happy but I did uh, and then, uh, and then I just set up a web design agency. And that's what I did for the next 20 years, We built websites, social media, and got to that point whereby, um, I was just telling you earlier, then I got married, uh, my marriage collapsed after three months. Um, and so I stopped, so, you know, I had a year of work, mum got sick, started looking after her. It was out running, listened to Rich Roll, <laughs> uh, discovered Bitcoin at the same time and said to Rich, I want to start a podcast. And he said, "What are you going to make it about?" So oh, I think I'll do it on Bitcoin. That's what I'm into at the moment. Yeah, here we are.
1: So how did you get? How then did you get into <coughs> Bitcoin?
0: Um, I was buying drugs online. <laughs> yeah, <the> truth <laughs> is, uh, one of my friends called me up and he's like, "Pete, there's this website." I used to. I I, I, yeah, I had a drug problem at one point. I'm ten years clean, ten years sober now, but I had quite a heavy cocaine uh, habit at the time, and uh, I was <laughs> my mates phoned me up and said, "Pete, there's a there's a website you can buy cocaine on the internet." Uh, called the Silk Road. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, you can buy cocaine on the internet, but you need to use a single Bitcoin. I was like, what are you on about? He's like, look, I'll come around. And So he showed me this website. It's on the dark web, um, Silk Road. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was right. And I, it was brilliant. I mean, it, it solved all the problems in the drug industry. It solved all the uh, problems that prohibition has caused, which is violence in the industry. You know, if you if you want to have a rational conversation about drugs and the issues, the, the problems that drugs are causing... I mean, this website solved it. It it separated the people from the purchase. It's a whole other rabbit hole. But anyway, the point being that I needed Bitcoin to do to do that. And so that's when I discovered Bitcoin.
1: So you went online, you found your way of buying your buying your fix. Yep. It was sent to you in the post. Sent you in the post, yeah. Vax sealed. Really?
0: Yeah. And so what you used to do, you used to not put your name on it because the risk is you're tracked. Yeah. So you put a different name on it. I used to use this name Andy Turner and uh yeah get sent to my house and w- what i would do is when it would come in i would then leave it by the um by the front door for a day just in case the police knock on your door and say oh you've been getting drugs delivered like well oh, it's not it's not me i don't know what this is obviously no one came and knocked and then yeah i had my coke but the problem that caused is it's like you, i used to be a casual cocaine user go out and go and get drunk and you know maybe yeah, phone a dealer and score and this was cocaine turning up at in the post at 11 in the morning and you know, when my marriage broke up and I wasn't in the best place, I'd be like, oh, "Well, just have a little line now." It's lunchtime, and then before I know, it, I've spent all day doing coke, and yeah, I was—I was in a it wasn't in a good way for a long while, and yeah, you know, I had to go and get clean and sober and sort myself out, which I did. Um, yeah, very strange period of my life. How old were you when that happened? I was thirty. or it would be—it's about a decade ago, so I was thirty-four. So there was like a, a combination of events which. Which wasn't great. So I got I got married uh to um the love of my life and the mother of my children. Uh but three months into the marriage, I found out she'd been having an affair all year with my best friend. Yeah. So our marriage collapsed immediately because obviously it had no meaning and she moved out and I was not in a good place with very with good money with a successful advertising agency and very good, easy access to good cocaine, which is a very bad combination. So I had about three months where I was like a rock star every night, sometimes all day, and it culminated in one one day. Basically, so, yeah, basically I had something called an SVT, which is uh, like a heart condition whereby the uh, the electric signals in the heart go crazy, and my heart rate went up to two hundred beats per minute. And and when you look it up online, all the symptoms are symptoms of a heart attack. So, phone the ambulance. I end up in hospital and. You know, they calmed me down. The doctor explained to me, said, look, you're lucky this time. It was, it was an SVT, it's not a heart attack, but you could have had a heart attack. So you need to go and have a think about this. So what happened was I went to I went to the doctors, explained the problem. Uh, they weren't great. Um, they didn't really have any access to, you know, any formal, decent kind of I don't know if they called it Cocaine Anonymous or Drugs Anonymous, they, they didn't, what they actually wanted to do, because I was suffering with anxiety, they wanted to put me on um, antidepressants. And so I sat outside, uh, the, remember I remember sitting outside the doctors, and I had the prescription for antidepressants, and I was sitting there thinking, fuck me, like five months ago, life was great. I was marrying, uh, marrying my fiancé, kids are great, my company's crushing it, you know, three million turnover. Now my company's, failing i'm gonna get divorced my kids are living elsewhere and i am a drug addict and mild alcoholic and i was like this is fucking terrible and so i was like i don't want to go into antidepressants so i googled online what's the um alternative to antidepressants and it's came up with uh, yoga meditation running so i went down to jd sports bought a pair of trainers and uh i went for a run that day and i ended up pretty much running nearly every day for a year I was. I would just go out, and that's when I'd listen to a lot of the rich roll stuff. I would just go. I'd, I'd go for an hour run most days. Sometimes two, three hours run. I mean, I used to be a lot thinner when I did that. But um, but yeah, it sorted me out. It was, it was brilliant. It's um, it, it's it's cliche as this sounds. Uh, I hit a rock bottom, and then rebuilt my life. And everything that's happened, I'm glad because. I could not be happy with life now, but I had to go through a very rough experience to get there. Mm. Uh, a lot of shameful stuff. Like, like, There's a lot of shame attached with being an addict. Mm. Um, and I think that's why I la- la- uh, latched on to Rich as well, because he he was an addict. He was an alcoholic.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, you know, run- going for runs and hearing his story, him talking to other addicts and going, yeah, basically, I'm I'm a degenerate yeah. addict was was a good thing. And, you know, I stopped the drugs that day, that first run, n- never went back, never did cocaine ever again. Uh and yeah, just yeah, one step by one step rebuild my life. You didn't uh, know all
1: this, did you? <laughs> no. Talk to me about depression. Did you experience <clears throat> heavy did you ever did you ever feel suicidal? And... Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
0: I mean it was it was awful. Um I mean I I really loved her. Um didn't you know, on reflection, probably wasn't the best partner after you know, you was someone for twelve years. I think I took her for granted. Um probably wasn't as supportive as I should have been when we had kids. You know, did that cliche man thing. I think, well, I'm at work earning the money, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh and I don't excuse what she did, but I can understand the series of events that led to it. And I think it was the best thing for all of us in the end. But yeah, no, I the depression was bad because, you know, you're you're going from waking up with the woman you love to waking up on your own and your kids are in another house and she's off with another guy who was was one of your best friends and uh and so i remember i used to wake up and just literally wake up and go fuck this is shit so i stopped going to work that's why the advertising agency failed i just i couldn't bear it i hated going in uh and i was having real chronic anxiety uh, and it would come on like a wave so what I'd, you know be fine for days even weeks and then it would just hit you It's like a knot in the stomach and they'll be with me all day and it'd be shit. And I would be like, so that's why I was trying meditation and yoga, you know, and eventually it took about a year to beat it, but no, I did. I mean, I, you know, I don't think I've ever told this, but I, I wrote a suicide note, not in that. I don't think I, I don't think I'd have done it. I, I'm To be honest, I'm too much of a pussy to do it. it. It's, it seems, yeah. I would think about it as like, if I, I, I almost, I almost felt like I wrote it for a, uh, cry for help but to myself you know to write it and and I mean I'll show you afterwards I've kept it to, to go through that to actually almost like have a word with myself but also I shouldn't laugh at this but when you go research like ways to commit suicide you can get it wrong <laughs> you can really get like for everything you think is a way to kill yourself there's a survival rate like people who've jumped off car parks I don't want to say 10% but then they're fucked they're like in a wheelchair or brain damaged and so I was like, wow, if I, you know, there's a percent chance here I, I survive and I'm in a much worse state. But like I said, I don't think I'll, I would ever have done it. But I, would be lying if I didn't question it. I mean, I felt awful. Yeah, you know, I lost every, I like, yeah, you know, my company collapsed, my my wife was gone. I was two two weeks from losing my home, and uh, you know, I lied to the mortgage from the mortgage company to keep my mortgage. I wrote a, a false letter about employment which renewed my mortgage, I mean, mm-hmm. which I know is probably a crime mm-hmm. someone might report me for or whatever. But, you yeah, know, it, it was rubbish. But, like, I'm, I'm footing out the other end now. And so I can look back on it and talk about it. And if somebody's going through it... My, my brother, I used to find out my brother. I was just on the phone to him on the way down for about an hour. He used to say to me, because I was like, Neil, I feel so bad. There was a time when I, I was working here in London... And I was at work and I just couldn't cope. And I had to come out of the office and I went down a side street and I literally collapsed into a doorway and I was just crying my eyes out, thinking, I oh, I just cannot fucking cope with this shitty feeling. And I used to find my brother and he used to say, Pete, better days will come. You won't feel like it because it's so far away, but better better times will come. And he was right. They did. But it just takes time and... You have to do that personal work. I think, God, I'm going. I'm rambling a bit here. I didn't think we will talk about this, but the, I think the most important thing I did, because I was definitely acting like a victim, was to reflect on everything that happened and go, okay, what did I do wrong? And then if you've got if you've got the balls to deal with that and really question and question yourself and go, okay, and, and recognize what you did wrong and own it then i think it's a lot easier to get better. but if you don't do that bit of work, you're constantly in a state of victimhood like oh they cheated on me, they did this, oh it's out of order. Once i did the work and i was like okay, what did i do wrong? Well, i was selfish and inconsiderate and thought by paying, buying stuff would would cover for being a bit shit and pr- probably wasn't nice enough all the time, blah blah blah. Once you do that, you go okay, now i know why this might have happened. Oh well, it's 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 my fault I can fix that but if you stay in victim mode you constantly feel like well it's all their fault and I can't do anything about it does that make sense? Mm -hmm. very much so
1: very much so Hmm. so it's interesting the point you made about people jumping off car parks Hmm. somebody who's a friend of mine (coughs) jumped off the seventh seventh floor of a building last week or two weeks ago holy shit and survived Um, and he must be pretty fucking ill now he's been in intensive care yeah. for, just just came out last week of intensive care is he's, he's, and he got back home a few days ago and he's recovering but he's a big strong guy and uh, but if you'd have put 100 people in a line together and said which one is likely there'd been 99 people before him that i would say are likely but um so i think about you know suicide we've all had journeys ourselves, and you've had a journey, and I, th- I mean, look, I every time you, you hear very, about it, the way that you described it at first, and this is quite interesting. It's very matter of fact, okay, but there's much more to matter of fact. It's like let's 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 understand because there's people that are listening to this right now that um, may be hurting, may be suffering, may have alcohol problems or or drug problems, and it's like diminishing the 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 kind of like the importance of your story i don't think i don't think it's wise i think you must have been on one hell of a journey and and i, I the, the bit that the bit that made me feel real pain was when you said she was the love of your life it's like you know you yeah. mother you know and for her to be doing that with um someone who's a friend of yours in that time at that moment you wouldn't have been able to reflect you wouldn't have been able to see it in different angles or from different perspectives it's just like my wife is with my mate
0: yeah yeah it, it, and they went off on a holiday and honestly it, it really like it was like no holiday is the wrong word they worked together they went on a work trip where a lot of people went but I was like I know what's going to go on and that, that was that was hard to take it was, and and i still love her and and some people was like well, what's wrong with you she did this to you and i'm like i get it but i do i, I do still love her but when it's that really happened
1: hard. what she did she did this to you was what you'd have felt now you're 10 years down the road you've been able to look back and as you said earlier i i can identify what i didn't do right I, yeah How so, i could have been better You don't know, like give said, her for it but there were there were some um aspects of your behavior that maybe led her to, to look in different directions.
0: Look, I can see the chain of events that led to it now, which I couldn't see at the time because we're getting married. You think everything's great. But I see the... Like I said, I'm not making an excuse. Uh, she could have easily come to me and said, Pete, I am not happy. Like, my eyes are wandering. I need to talk to you about this. And she'd have made a real effort. Then, then we could have dealt with it. And maybe I still, you know, at that time, wouldn't have been receptive. You know, I think it's really funny. I think as a bloke, you you actually, you mature most from 30 to 40. I think they're the years you really kind of mature. Mm. Women, I think, do it from 20 to 30. Uh, you do it from 30 to 40. Um, I think she should have done that. But at the same time, I don't, you know, I look back and we're not suited. Yeah, you know, I am an entrepreneur who is an addict. And one of my addictions, I always have to have some addiction, whether it's coffee, cocaine, running, or business can't just stop it's just in me and I'm okay with that I don't, I don't see it as a flaw I, and so I work a lot and I'm ambitious and driven and that's cool I'm, I'm okay with that and that means I have less time for personal relationships and that's the priorities I make and and so the, the bloke she's with what he did he he was a good friend of mine let's let's not beat around the bush he's absolute I'm, I, I know you said I could swear I'm not gonna say the c-word but he is for doing that but I, I can also recognize He's probably better for her. They're still together? Yeah, still together. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he's probably better for her in that they're probably more suited. They want similar things. He's probably gives her more time. Yeah, he's probably better for her. Again, no excuse. What he did was awful. He's my friend. You don't do that to a friend, but still. But it's, it's, yeah, apart from what my kids have been through, it's in some ways it's hard to look back and I don't want to change it because for some reason or another, What's come out of this is I've got to live the almost the exact life I wanted to live. You know, I'm doing the best job in the world, which is a podcast. So I now make documentaries, which I know you do, which is one of the most fulfilling things you can ever do. And I bought my local football team. <laughs> you know, like and 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 I've made. You know, I'm not rich, but nice, comfortable. I bought a local bar recently. Like life is is pretty cool. I'm 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 happy. I'm I, I'm ha- I'll accept the whole journey. You know, all the bad stuff, because I don't think if that happened, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. But it
1: was rough. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's all That's right. Awesome. I mean,
0: I've told it before. Yeah, if, if anybody who's listened to my podcast, they know I've talked about this. I'm quite a transparent, open book um, with all the social media attacks that come with that. You get <laughs> called a cuck or whatever. But um, I, I'm okay to be transparent because, look, if anyone is listening, yeah, and they are, if they've got an addiction, Truth is about addictions, alcohol, drugs, whatever, those kind of addictions. Like you can replace them with good addictions. If you're an addict, you just, you can replace them with good ones. You can replace cocaine with running very easily. You've just got to want to do it and you've got to get through that first few weeks. You've got to accept it and go and do that. And then if anyone is feeling really low and shit, I've been there. Like those horrible depressed feelings, that anxiety, panic attacks. God, I had about a year of panic attacks. Again, you can deal with that, but you just have to make good decisions. If you're if you're suffering depression and you've got alcohol or drug problem, they're absolutely aligned. You might have a chemical imbalance. Fine. You can deal with that. But you have to go and start making the good choices. Mm. You know, and, and it's hard because it's a bit like losing weight, right? God, I, I need to lose a couple of stone of weight. I can be really good for three days and then really shit for three days. And the problem is you don't see instant results. It's, it takes time. And I think depression anxiety and drugs they're all things that just take a long time mm. but once you're through it you're through it like I can even I wouldn't even I can't even imagine doing cocaine again mm-hmm. it, it's a foreign concept to me now and I st- have you had depression yeah yeah okay so you've had it um, once you're through it you can recognize the signals when it's coming back mm-hmm. and I know it when it's coming back and I can deal with it mm-hmm. I can get on with it and deal with it and so Anyone who is listening, you've got to go and build a toolkit. Hmm. But but as my brother said, it will get better.
1: This too shall pass.
0: Yeah, this too shall pass. Yeah, that's, it's it's such a great saying. Hmm. But, but it will come down to you as a person to make that happen. Um, yeah, like I say, like losing weight. As soon as I stop eat, eating garbage and pizzas on the weekend, I will probably start to lose weight. Um, if if you want if you want to deal with your depression, you should go go see a doctor, go see a therapist, talk to a friend, get off any depressant that you're taking like you you start making the right decisions, you will get through it mm-hmm. and I know people have had horrendous depression have got through it,
1: mm-hmm. but you will get through it mm, I agree okay, let's talk about money, yes, Bitcoin mm-hmm. there are obviously many cryptocurrencies that exist out there shit coins. <laughs> Um, we saw recently uh, a couple of weeks (laughs) weeks back the crazy Pepe thing that happened and you know I've been in the wealth management industry for 30 years and so there's no such thing as get rich quick it's always get rich slowly Um, however when I when I see people getting excited about maybe a Shiba Inu as it happened, or one of these other altcoins, it worries me because people are seduced by that fast buck yep. mindset and mentality. Um, I remember Da Vinci, Jeremy, and his one buy one dollars worth of Bitcoin video all those years ago. At, like most things, people don't didn't understand what it was. And today, you've got a world where. Um, crypto.com were telling me recently there are 80 million accounts that are open and well, yeah, Coinbase on top of that and all the other boys out there, finance and stuff. How many people have got as a percentage of the population of the world, how many people have actually got one of these crypto, uh, trading accounts? Well, certainly the numbers are growing. How many of those are funded is another matter, but the number's growing. Do you think with your own experience that people now are at a point where they accept that Bitcoin is going to be just as important as USD and GBP in the next five or ten years of their lives? Or do you think still there's a lot of people walking around going, well, what is it again? Or do you think most people just haven't got a clue what it actually means?
0: I think most people still don't have a clue what it means. Okay. I think the there is a, an enormous gap between what somebody down the Bitcoin rabbit hole has been down there for a year or two, really spent time understanding it,
1: mm-hmm.
0: trying to understand the wider economy, trying to understand money is what how they see Bitcoin versus somebody who has heard about it in the news, know it exists, never never been near it. Because the outside story of Bitcoin is, like if you've never heard of it, Well, say when I was told The Silk Road, I was told, yeah, you can buy it with this thing Bitcoin. What's that? Well, it's like digital money. I was like, oh, well, it sounds like, like nonsense. Yeah. You know, it doesn't really make sense because you're trying to explain foreign concepts to people. Yeah, with money, what we're used to is we've either got pound notes in our pocket, we've got a card, and we go and pay something, and we tap our card, or we give them our pound notes. And at the end of the month, we get paid again, we get a top up, and then we go through the month, and that's what money is to us. When you start to break that down, explain, oh well, no, there's a different form of money. It's called Bitcoin. It's decentralized. You're immediately having to present concepts to people they've never had to never had to learn. We're not taught about money. The basic teaching we get about money is when we're a kid and we get a toy, which is maybe like a checkout till. And your parents are playing with you and they buy a broccoli and a loaf of bread and they hand some money. That's the basic education we get about money. And then we learn to use money. But we don't learn what the nature of money is and what gives it value. And so it's such a foreign concept to people. And, and to try and get people over that line to just even think about Bitcoin. It's really, really hard. I mean, look, I've got the biggest Bitcoin podcast in the world. I think I don't. I don't, I don't say that. Um, I'm not saying that as a flex. More as a reflection of my relationship with my friends, out of my group of friends at home, I think one of them has a bit of Bitcoin. Knows a little bit. None of them have bought any, and I don't even try and talk to them about it. They don't care. And so we are so. We, we're, it means we're very early, but it means we have a problem in communicating this to people. It's a it's a hard thing to communicate. It's not a hard thing when you're in Venezuela. It's not a hard thing when you're in Mm -hmm. Lebanon. I mean, I've traveled a lot with this podcast. I've been to Venezuela. I've been to Argentina. If you're in a country with bad money and you explain Bitcoin, they get it. I think we have bad money in this country, but inflation is generally slow and insidious, so people suffer it. So, yeah, I think most people, most normies outside of our crazy world, they don't get it. Their perception of it is completely wrong. And they don't understand why we need it. And in some ways, I think that's a good thing. The only reason I think this is a good thing is that if you had overnight adoption of Bitcoin, it would be chaos. If everybody suddenly wanted it, it would be absolute chaos. What instead we've got is this like cycle every four years where we, you know, by a you know, factor of whatever, we increase the adoption of Bitcoin. We get new companies, new users, new merchants accepting it. And it's it's like a it's almost like a carefully planned transition from uh fiat-backed economies to Bitcoin-backed economy, which might be a multi-decade thing. And that means there can be a certain amount of I don't want to say calmness. What's the word I'm thinking? There there is just like almost like a managed transition, except it's not really managed, it's decentralized, so it's unmanaged, but almost like a managed transition. If everybody woke up tomorrow and went, you know, I need Bitcoin, we would have ridiculous volatility. Most people would lose money because they were getting it at the wrong time. And so, the I I am perfectly happy with the adoption rate of Bitcoin. I'm perfectly happy with not everyone getting it. And I think it's it means we have this like nice transition to a Bitcoin backed
1: world. Don't you think there's a problem though? I mean, in, <coughs> in 2008, I remember I was living in Sao Paulo. No, sorry. Where was I? 2008. I was in. It was in Dubai, and I remember in 2008 I was living in Dubai, and um, we had the financial crisis. And I remember watching every day CNBC and Bloomberg and whatnot. And this this dude with a loud, annoying voice came on most most times in the week. You'd see him on. And his name was Peter Schiff. <laughs> and he would come on the, the, on the TV channel and they'd be talking about this, this crisis coming. And in 2007 or whatever he was saying, and he's like, it's going to fall apart. It's going to crash. It's going to crash. It's going to crash. It's going to crash. And, you know, all these other people are like, Peter Schiff, you don't know what you're talking about. You're talking nonsense. Anyway, there's that famous video that was made that did the rounds. He predicted the crash of the financial markets. But so then everyone thinks he's a guru. He knows we must follow the word of the one Peter Schiff, yeah? Then you get this time round, you get him poo-pooing on anything cryptocurrency. Yeah. You know, very negative about it, saying it's a load of nonsense, not in a million years, which I find really interesting because is he going to go from hero to zero or did he already prove that he was from hero to zero or, or is it just because it's not his specialist subject, he probably shouldn't comment on it? What do you think? I think incentives matter in a lot of things in life.
0: Uh-huh. And I think we're all screwed by incentives. Uh, do you watch Succession?
1: I watched some of Succession, yeah.
0: So in the latest series, a uh, bit of a plot spoiler, but they're discussing in the uh, in the back offices when to call the they're, you know Obviously their TV channel is covering the election. And they're like, we need to be first. And they said, but we not, might be wrong. But if we're wrong and we've called it, we've given him a head start if this goes to litigation, what if we're putting in the wrong guy? And they're like, yeah, but we will have direct connection to him. And so essentially speaking, what they're discussing is they can call the election, and they might actually influence the end result, but there's an incentive for them to do it as a network to have this lead relationship with the president, right? I mean, when you think about it, that is, it's crazy, that kind of world we live in that that kind of power can be had over democracy because of the incentives of three board members of a TV channel in a room. And yes, it's drama, but it's incentives. And so when I think of Peter Schiff, I think he is one of the best macro analysts out there. But he's spent his whole career telling people gold is the solution. I don't know what gold companies he has, what gold holdings he has. And so I think him transitioning to Bitcoin's hard. I also think he struggled at the start, like everybody else, like trying to understand Bitcoin is hard. It usually takes two or three touch points. If I'd have bought Bitcoin when I first held about it, I'd be a billionaire. Like most other people. I was like, it's nonsense. And then my second touch point, you know, later on, I was like, okay, I kind of get it. I'll buy a little bit. And my third touch point is like, yeah. I think he missed so big that first time because everyone was telling him about Bitcoin. I think... I don't think he can bring himself to say he was wrong as well. And so all I look at mm. with Peter Schiff, I just look at him and say, look, there are incentives and ego and all these things at play. But I can ignore that. I just, I think his analysis of the wider macro economy, how central banks work, I think he's, I think he's 100% right. And I just ignore him on Bitcoin.
1: Okay, it's interesting.
0: His son's a Bitcoiner.
1: Is he? Spencer, yeah.
0: And they, they go at
1: each other online. It's, it's hilarious. So I listened to, to you with Peter a little while ago. Yeah. You were late into a studio. I can't remember what the...
0: Pomp, was. was that in Pomp, Pomp studio? Yeah. yeah.
1: And uh, I, I love the banter that goes between the kind of like the believers and the non-believers. And I find it kind of interesting when you've got, you've got Warren Buffett and people like that going, ah, it's a load of old rubbish, you know, I wouldn't do that. But yet you see... Countries adopt Bitcoin, yet you see governments wanting to bring out their kind of like Bitcoin alternative, yeah. their their next digital currency that's, you know, gonna take control of the, the human race and all that kind of stuff. So when you get this this we don't believe in it, it's not the right thing, and then you get governments actually that are trying creating their own, you know, mimic or their own copy of it, then it just to me demonstrates that it must be the way.
0: But look, Bitcoin is a open, permissionless, peer to peer financial network, mm-hmm. right, or protocol or money, whatever you want to call it. It's working because it keeps growing. And every four years, more people use it. Every four years, the price goes higher because of the limited supply. And if you leave Bitcoin alone, it will continue to grow because people have recognized the benefits of Bitcoin. We also have use cases of Bitcoin, whether that's for, supporting activists in parts of the world where they need access to money or donations sent in, whether it's completing international transactions because you can't connect your banks. I mean, when you travel to places like El Salvador and you try and move money in and out of the country, it is a nightmare. And so we have these use cases for Bitcoin. but It's still a very early technology. We're we're still in the first innings. Remember when we first got the internet? I remember I first got the internet. And you'd be on a fifty-six k modem, and you'd be waiting for an image to download. It will take forever. Now we can stream movies on an airplane. I think with Bitcoin, we're still just super very early, and yeah, you know, we have the use cases. What we need now is just just. It's like podcasting. What did what did we say earlier? Just be patient. Just be patient with Bitcoin. That's, that's all I think it needs is just a bit of patience. Do
1: you think that 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 It's been highlighted and and, and more hyped in recent times because of the chronic issues with inflation around the world. I mean, Argentina, we're sitting, at, um, 100% in, yep. we're sitting at 100% in Lebanon, we're at 40% in Iran, we're at, um, you know, obviously, the numbers that we've had across Europe and the UK up to 10% at one point, a little bit less now. I mean, I argue that the inflation is higher than that anyway. In Dubai, inflation is officially 4 or 5%, but that's nuts because a basket of groceries is definitely doubled in price, if not more. Yeah. Do you think that whole kind of inflation story, has made us think more about real money and made us think about the alternatives to that uh, and and take action with that.
0: Almost certainly. Uh, Sadly, local Bitcoins uh, closed down recently, which was the first place I ever bought Bitcoin. But I don't know if they still got the data there, but you have this really interesting data whereby you could see the different purchasing of Bitcoin in different countries. and Whenever you'd see a currency crisis or a massive rise in inflation, like I say, whether it was Lebanon or Turkey or Argentina, you would see... Bitcoin transactions would go up in that country. People wanted to buy Bitcoin. Like I say, when you've got good... I say good. I say relatively good. Here in the UK, good money or the US. You don't really need to find an alternative. When I was in Venezuela, people used five currencies. They had the Bolivar, the local <coughs> the local currency, which yeah. went through hyperinflation. They had access to the Colombian peso. Uh, they had... Uh, access to U.S. dollars, and they had Bitcoin. And What was the other one? It was that weird government crypto. I can't remember what it's called now. But anyway, they had all these different currencies. When you've got bad money, you recognize good monies. And so when I was in Caracas, when you went to a restaurant, everything was priced in bolivar, but they wanted dollars because they naturally knew their bolivars were inflating away. They were melting away. (coughs) I had the same when I was in Cambodia they wanted dollars when you go to these places mm-hmm. when you've got bad money you want an alternative when you when you live in the relative safety and comfort of a western liberal democracy you don't need to think of that alternative because even 10% inflation i know it's probably high, it's more like 15-20% you still find a way of coping mm-hmm. right you know you go out a little bit less or when you go and do your shopping you can just change the things you buy or you suffer the shrinkflation that you know that exists we haven't had 50, 60, 70, 80, 100% inflation. We haven't had to think of an alternative.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I say that and I know there's an alternative and it's Bitcoin. And I hold my money in Bitcoin. I hold an irresponsibly long amount of my money in Bitcoin because any savings I have that for the next 10, 20 years, I'm not going to hold them in the pound. It's melting away. I hold it in Bitcoin. I know of that alternative. And so I'm living in a different paradigm for most people. It's almost like we need a. It's almost like every time we have a crisis, that is a booster for Bitcoin, that is an accelerant. Yeah, if we had hundred percent inflation here, which by the way, isn't beyond the realms of possibility, you know, we, we are we are due to have a bond crisis. Yeah, my I've had a guy on my podcast a few times called Greg Foss. He said it's just math. <laughs> you know, our fiat economy is essentially Ponzi schemes, and at some point, we've got to pay back. And, he, and, and I interviewed, actually I interviewed a guy called Luke Guo and he said, you, know, you could do multi-year or you can just hard hit people really quick. Have three years of 100% inflation and all your problems are solved. But either way, we are going to be facing higher inflation again. And so I, I'm ready for this. So I have Bitcoin. It's, it's how do we communicate that to everyone else? And it's not been painful enough for them to, to see it. In Argentina, it's painful enough. And people see it. Yeah. It's not painful enough. That's yet. why
1: you would almost hope that the <coughs> that they they wouldn't extend their debt ceiling uh, in the U.S. You know, if they, but they had they- to.
0: I mean, if the U.S. defaults, you're talking about a global economic crisis. Of course. Uh, the I mean, and Russia and you know the brics nations would probably love a us default but that that would be an absolute yeah, but there's also disaster.
1: many countries that their currencies tied to the dollar so the yeah. dirham where we are in dubai is tied to the us dollar so that would be impacted dramatically yeah
0: and dollarized nations like el salvador mm-hmm. yeah these currencies will fail yeah i don't i can't i'm not an expert i know people can tell you i don't know if it's going to be 5 10 20 30 years but these currencies will fail there's no way this debt's going to be paid off. And each cycle they go through, they have to increase the... I mean, the, the debt ceiling they've just increased. They reckon they're going to print, what, another 30 trillion over the next 10 years? Is it something ridiculous? Obscene. I mean, th- I think the debt ceiling at 25 trillion now.
1: I think that one of the problems is with the word trillion and people don't understand what it is. So in seconds... Uh, yeah, I love this You one. know, the, I, I think it's brilliant. Explain in, it in, though. In seconds, a million seconds is 11 days. Yeah. A billion seconds is 32 years. And so if you compare a million and a billion, it's like a billion is the difference. Is that it's that big? What's a trillion? I don't know.
0: <laughs> Centuries, probably.
1: Yeah. Well, it's like 32 years yeah. is a billion versus 11 days, a million.
0: But it's never going to get paid off. And so every time they need to uh, increase the debt ceiling, that's a massive. Uh, injection of cash into uh, money into the system, and look, I'm not an expert. I I could recommend people to talk to about this who will explain it better, but that is going to drive up inflation. This, if you if you look at what's happening now in the U.S., it is the very early days of exactly what happened in Venezuela. It's the very early days of what happened in the Weimar Republic. We are seeing this yo yo in between trying to, trying to reigning inflation, but also trying to stop recessions. I mean, the whole thing is. It's it's, you know, it's it's very, very fragile, and it's a global issue. I have no idea how this is going to play out. All I know is is that I think my best thing I can do is hold Bitcoin because Bitcoin is a fixed, fixed uh, limit currency. There will only be 21 million. And so therefore, if you divide everything by 21 million, over time, I should be protected if p- people continue to adopt Bitcoin. And that's why I hope people listen. If they haven't adopted, Bitcoin is... Go down the rabbit hole. There's some great podcasts out there, great books out there. Go and look at what's happening with the global economy and just ask yourself whether you can afford not to just even hold a little bit of Bitcoin.
1: Do you think that most people, you know, you spoke earlier about them not understanding how to manage money at at school, you know, the cash register, the little toy one that mum and dad would buy your cucumber and stuff. Do you think that people just don't understand money, have a bad psychological relationship with money, so then just shy away from anything that's even more complicated than what they already understand?
0: I think there's two things going on. I think,
1: I don't think we've had a
0: need to learn about the nature of money, what it is, because for decades it's just kind of worked. Like I say, you get paid, you go and buy the stuff you need, then the month you get paid again, buy the stuff you need. It kind of works okay. Yeah, I mean, you can get into the detail of, well, yeah, you know, bank surveillance and KYC and all that kind of stuff. But generally speaking, it kind of works well in Western liberal democracies. We have good financial rails, and so we've had no need because it just works. It's when it starts to break, when it starts to break, that's when people like. Re- so remind me of the question. Sorry, I've gone down a
1: when when you when you look at that relationship that people have with money, yeah. it's like it's like they don't get it.
0: But I think we have a, a, a changing relationship with money in that. Yeah, when I grew up, my parents, they wouldn't go out all the time. Maybe once a fortnight, they would go out. We would cook every meal at home. My dad would save. He had savings. And now it's, everyone's just living, it feels like everyone's just living month to month. They've got the most expensive mortgage they can afford. They've got a car with car payments, probably a better car than they can. And they're trying to save enough so at one point during the year, they can have a holiday. Yeah, I'm 44 years old. Multiple friends who I know have no savings, mm-hmm. and I don't think they they have a plan for retirement. Mm-hmm. And so I think our our relationship with money has changed. As I think, I think we've not had to think about money, and our relationship with money has changed. We we just live in a much more consumerist society.
1: Well, you remember the older days? Maybe your dad, definitely my dad. You know, you go and work in a factory, and you got a brown envelope with the cash in at the end of the week. Yep. And so you take the cash home, you know, you take your, what your costs are going to be out of the cash and you give it to the wife and yep. all that kind of stuff. And you're left with your beer money. X amount of beer money that you can go down the pub with. Yep. And so that, that, and that was very tangible. And then, then we went, you know, I'm 53 years old, so I probably remember a bit more than you. But we went from there and then checks were introduced and we had checks. And even in, to this day, we use checks in Dubai. Still. Yeah, bizarre, isn't it? you know what? I, so, I, I used golden. to. I haven't had a check for a while. So we had, we had checks, then we had check guarantee cards. Yeah. And said, well, that machine used to run it over in the, in the supermarket where you could get £50 cash back, okay, and your check guarantee card. But you were still carrying around stuff, you know. You still had your wallet with your checkbook in there trying to fold it up because the thick checkbook was in there. You had your check guarantee card and you still had cash. And you would invariably pay for cash for most things. You never go to the pub with your credit card. Yeah. You'd lean across the bar with your 20 quid in your hand and say, can we have two pints, please, mate? Yeah. And so that, that's how we paid. To the point now where I've been here in the UK since Saturday afternoon, and I'm here for the week. I haven't touched cash since I got here. Now, the only reason I've got a credit card in my pocket is that on my phone is my Dubai credit card. <laughs> and so otherwise, I'd be tapping it. And so we have this, it's, to me, it's called subconscious spend. So the behavior, okay, is we know what our expenses are, we've got what's left over, but we don't pay attention to the things that we just go tap tap, tap on. And that could be a breakfast for two, okay, and some sourdough and avocados, okay, to something expensive at a car dealership or whatever it might be. And we're not thinking about that. So then we spend more subconsciously, which means we don't think about the future consciously the way we should. For me, you're getting people to understand that, you know, I've sat down with people, and I, I can in thirty years tell you five people I've met that don't need me. Okay, five people I've met that are so well put together that you just like hat taken off, you know. The rest, and I mean wealthy, successful people as well, sitting there, and I'm like, why are you doing that? And I'm like, well, I just thought, I just, I just, I just, well, I, I just thought, I'm like, why would you do that? That's nuts. Most people don't understand how to manage their own money. They go for the pay rise. And so for me, it's like if, if Bitcoin is the solution for money, if Bitcoin really is what we should do instead of dollars and pounds and all that kind of stuff, if it is, then we've got to teach people in a way that they can understand. And the best way to understand it is storytelling in the mainstream. That's what I believe has Mm. to be. It has to be on Sky News, storytelling where people... It has to be on the front page of the mirror in a storytelling way. The red tops, the the, the common news channels.
0: But they're not going to.
1: No, that's the interesting thing, you know. We can see now it's on CNBC. We can see they're talking about it on on, on Bloomberg and stuff, which are, are very, you know, specialist channels in real terms. But you need it to be on that kind of whole repeat cycle on the BBC World Service. In in and telling stories about it and how it's changing people's lives and how it's doing great things consistently for it to slowly kind of uh, pasteurize into people, well, oh, percolate, sorry, into people's minds.
0: I, I think I think there's another aspect to this as well. Like when you go down the rabbit hole of fiat money, and people often first say, they like, "What do you mean by fiat money?" It's just sovereign money, pounds, dollars. If you go down that rabbit hole of actually understand how central banks work and how money works, and you start to uncover things, you know, when we have zero percent interest rates, what incentive is there to save? And if you've got zero percent interest rates, or even half a percent at a time you got ten percent inflation, what incentive is there to save? I don't save pounds anymore. If I had ten thousand pounds, I know in a year that's going to be nine thousand pounds, really, It's still ten thousand pounds, but it's going to buy be me what nine thousand. It may be worse. So what incentive is there to save the incentive is to spend but with Bitcoin there is an incentive to save because I know every Bitcoin I bought you know four or five years ago is now worth more it has the, the purchasing power goes up and so that's a story you can tell people that look Bitcoin is a savings technology it's a way to save and protect your money for the future there is no incentive to save at the moment but I just I just feel like the incentives of the system all the negative incentives of Government's ability to print money, yeah, central banks protecting governments, low interest rates, consumer culture—it's yeah, just led us to where we are now, where we are in a very precarious position as a global economy, not just the UK economy, but a very precarious position. And I don't think people realize what is a, what could be around the corner. I don't want to be a doomer, but but what happened in two thousand and eight will, will seem like a holiday compared to what's coming when. You know all yeah you know, when 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 all the, all this negative uh debt comes to come you know yeah yeah but how how is it all going to be paid off that's the biggest question What is it 400 trillion of global debt
1: yeah, there's no way it can be paid off <laughs> no. based around the situation. And again, you take take Zimbabwe. Yep. Zimbabwe is a great example of the global economy, what it could be. Zimbabwe, you know, Zimbabwe, you've got this crazy leader that says it's going to be a certain way. Robert Mugabe's taking everyone's land off them. The country's, you know, going to ratchet. When as Rhodesia, arguably, it was a very prosperous nation, and you see now. And I have people that I know and I work within Zim, and mm-hmm. they're like, I'm like, what do you do? They said I get some of my salary in uh, Zim dollar. And I'm like, what do you do with that? They said, the moment it hits my account, there's already, already buy orders in place to buy the stuff I need to buy with local currency. Yeah. I spend it the second I get it. Then the rest of my money is paid in US dollars. I'm like, okay, fine. What do you buy stuff in? I always buy in US dollars. Okay. That currency has gone literally to ratchet. You've got gazillions and gazillions. Of, I mean, I've got 2 billion Zim dollar notes and all that kind of stuff. I look at that and I'm like, That's, that can be repeated very easily. And if that's repeated it very easily, where does that leave us?
0: Well, the problem is, is no government is willing to go through the pain. It's, it, it, it's funny, there's an, an, an analogy here with drug addiction. We talked about drugs earlier. Or any form of addiction. Think, think about uh, a heroin addict. Now they really want to stop. They may really want to stop, but they know if they stop, they're going to have to go through pain, sickness, withdrawals, it's going to be horrible. It's going to be horrendous. And you know, I don't know what it's like, but I've seen train spotting. I reckon they did a pretty good job of explaining it. It's going to be horrendous. And so they keep putting it off, They keep putting it off. But by putting it off, it's going to get worse and worse and worse, or eventually they might actually die. And this is the problem with fiat money is we really need to go back to what Ray Dalio talks about, which is these natural market cycles, boom and bust. And we have to accept that, you know, for us to have an economic boom, we have to have an economic bust. And during these, when there's an economic bust, we have to have you know, companies fold and recession and you know, people lose their jobs. It's difficult, but that is part of a natural market cycle. The problem is, is no government wants to have the economic bust anymore. So what do they do? They print their way out of it. Because it's how, I mean, how politically unpopular was it when the Conservatives said, look, we need a bit of austerity here. We need to rein it in? It was hugely unpopular.
1: Mm. And so, every- nearly as popular as Philip Schofield in the news. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I think we'll save that one. <laughs>
0: um, but, but it's politically unpopular. If you're, you, you know, Keir Starmer coming in, yeah, you've got a very good chance of winning the election now because Conservatives have been so terrible. But if you came and said, look, listen, I know, uh, I know the gov- uh, Conservatives haven't been great, but and we're leading the polls. But just so you know, we're in a tough economic spot here right now. So what we're going to need to do is massively reduce spending on public services. We're going to have to massively rein in pensions. We're going to have to raise tax." And then conservatives go, we're not going to do that. Who, who are people going to vote for? So essentially, the governments are, uh, of this world are, are, are canvassing for votes by offering to pay for things they can't afford and then going to the money printer, which ultimately is bad for all of us. And so we have this really skewed incentive system. It always comes back to incentives between political ambition, what is best for the economy, and there's no alignment. Because there's a lag. When the government prints money, you know, it doesn't affect their term. It affects the term of the person after or the person after that. And so we're just in this perpetual cycle of, of the economy, just well, kick, kicking the can down the road. And eventually, I you know, don't want to keep talking in cliches, but chickens will come home to roost.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, right, let's move on. Yes. Football. Yes, my favorite subject. Talk to me about football. How do you end up buying a football club? What happened? How did it happen?
0: Well, so, so, so I'm from Bedford. I told you I support Liverpool, uh, and, but I've always, I've always kind of once I became aware of kind of local football, I said to my dad, I, I must have been a teenager, late teens. I said, I'm going to buy Bedford one day. He's like, what? I said, yeah, I'm going to buy Bedford one day. Uh, and then about five years ago, during the first uh, 2007. Uh, crypto bitcoin run and i managed to turn a small amount of money into a lot of money i inquired about about, about buying for town it wasn't the right time i didn't have enough money actually at the time so it, it fell apart and good because then the crypto market crashed and i lost all my money um i didn't have a plan i just wanted to do it but what happened was uh, about a year and a half ago two years ago i was like i think actually i've got an idea to make this work and so and when i say make it work my goal I tell everyone I'm going to get Bedford in the Premier League, but realistically, my goal is the Football League. I think that's a realistic target with the largest town in the country without a team in the Football League. Population of 174,000. Our nearest competitors are Watford and Luton. It's not like we're in London competing with Chelsea and Arsenal or Birmingham competing with Villa and Wolves or up north. So we don't have a lot of competition and we've got a big catchment area. And so the town can service a team in the Football League, but it's how do you go from non-league to Football League? So I approached the owner of Bedford Town. They were step four at the time, which means they're in the fourth division of non-league. So anyone listening, English football, there's the professional leagues, which is Premier League, Championship League, One, League Two. Then you go into non-league, which is National League, then it splits to National North-South and National League Step One all the way down to what, Step Seven, Eight. They were in Step Four and I made them an offer and they said no. And so the guy who'd been helping me said, well, there's a team next door called Bedford FC. They're step six. They're two divisions below Bedford. They might be interested. So I approached the owner. I said, look, I've got a plan. This is it. Do you want to sell? And he said, yep. So I bought the team and and I had this plan. And How much did you pay for it? That's not never been disclosed. Come so in, on. No. So in fairness to the buyer, because if it's disclosed, it's, it's no issue for me disclosing it. But it's not fair, sorry, the seller, it's not fair on the seller to disclose that number if, if it's not been disclosed. Do you see what I mean?
1: Was it a song or was it a large amount of money?
0: I, I wouldn't even give an indication. But okay. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you off camera. Okay. But, but, but it's, it's not fair to have that out in the public eye. Okay, I respect that. He, he, he didn't want it disclosed. Look, it's, not, it's a step-six team. Yeah. No one should think it's a large amount of money.
1: Um, I think so the, you, you go in there, you do a deal, I'm going to buy this football club. Why? well there's two reasons hold on before you get answer that because everybody thinks that football clubs okay are a drain on wealth they are okay they don't make you any money you know we see the glazers going on at the moment trying to sell man united and maybe that's a different discussion but most people believe it's like it's like buying a money pit
0: i mean for most people
1: it is okay
0: right and i didn't want to do that so so why do it uh because how cool is it to own your local team? Yeah. That's really cool. <laughs> um, it's it's the last year has been the most fun. Uh, secondly, I've been I've been lucky in life, and I really like my hometown. Wouldn't it be great to deliver this for the hometown? Wouldn't it be great for them to get in the football league and go? That's what that's what I gave back to my hometown. That would be very cool. Uh, thirdly, is I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain. It's hard to give you reasons. I just want to do it. Uh, I'm a competitive person. Uh, but I also think there's a, there's a u- we've got a unique opportunity. Well, not unique anymore because Wrexham had a similar opportunity. Mm-hmm. But we had a unique opportunity in that I f- realized how we could do this. Because the problem with football is <coughs> you, you, if you're a local team, you're a non-league team like Bedford, where does your money come from? Ticket sales? Local people who want to come watch you, local sponsors, whether it's a butchers or a construction company, who want to give you a few grand. Now, that means it's hard because money. Football really comes down to I, I, my math, my rough guess math is seventy percent is your budget, twenty percent is your manager, ten percent is luck. In that, you can have the best man. Well, I could have Pep Guardiola at um, our team if we had zero budget and he couldn't sign, he had to only get three players, he's not going to win the league. And you can have the worst manager, and I've got 100 million to spend on players, the worst manager is going to win that league, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a combination of, of the lot. For us to get in the football league, my plan is that every single year we have a budget, which means we can either win the league or get in the playoffs. So we're competitive every year. Okay, how do I do that with a team that's got nobody coming to watch them and no sponsors locally who give a give a damn about them? Well, you do something new. You say, We're not rail, we're not Bedford FC, we're Rail Bedford, and we're the Bitcoin team. And so what what is the what is the cheat code we get from that? Well, firstly, I've got half a million followers on Twitter. I've got a big show in terms of Bitcoin. So I can go out and say, hey, this is our team. This isn't just Bedford, this is our team. You as Bitcoiners, this is our team. And that means I've got people buying merch all around the world. I've got people flying in. People, We had 12 guys from Slovakia flying and watch a game. Really? To Bedford, a step six, you know, 10th tier football team. And I get access to sponsors. And so that means we have suddenly got a budget that, is, that no one can compete with at our level. And we should be able to do that for the first three seasons, Have a very competitive budget. And so what does that mean? Okay, I've got a great manager who's well rewarded who knows how to go and win the leagues. Great. He's got a budget, which means he can sign good enough players to know that we will be there or thereabouts. Great. What else does it mean? It means we can do the infrastructure work we need to do because every you know, every level you've got a, you've got a ground grader. Like We've got to put in new floodlights this year. That's 70 grand. Two new stands. That's another 40 grand. There's lots of work we have to do. It's expensive stuff to do. You cannot afford to do that with 200 people coming to watch a game paying eight quid to get in. So people call it a money pit because usually it's got to be some rich local guy who has to spend that 100 200 grand a year doing it. We don't. We've got we have got an internationally followed team in the 10th tier of English football. And by doing that, we have sponsors and merch sales. We sold 2000 shirts last year. Wow. 2000 wow. shirts. We got our attendances up from 40 a game to average of 180. we had 327 at one game. And it also means we can do other things. We have a hardship fund for youth football because there's a lot of people, their parents just cannot afford for their kids to play football. They can't afford a pair of football boots. They can't afford the, the subs. We now have a hardship fund. If your kid wants to play football, and you can't afford it. You can come to that. And we will buy your kids' boots and we will buy your kids' You know, – we'll pay their fees. So, yeah, that was fully used last year. It's just been doubled. One of our sponsors, Iris Energy, has just doubled it. Wow. And so it means we can do all these exciting things <clears> – <throat> But it's just a business model. It's a business model of a local football team versus a local football team around an idea where people around the world can believe it's their team. Mm. And so I think our plan is going to work. But it's going to work because the finances are there to do it. When did you start the journey?
1: So I took over the
0: team January 21. This year? No, January 2021. This year? No, we're in 23. January
1: 2021.
0: 2021. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so I had like January the 21st. I'm
1: like, really? I know, sorry. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I see what you mean now. So we had five, six months of the end of the season. It was too late to get promoted and they were still Bedford FC. Then we changed the manager, rebranded, did everything. And so we had our first pro- proper season, which was a 22, 23 season. Uh, we won the league by I think nine points, seven points or nine points. And we won one of the local cups. So we essentially did a double and we got promoted. And everything that we said we were going to, we we did, and the whole plan worked. And the plan worked because we we worked hard. We had the budget, and we had we got a very good manager. I think we'll do this. I think we'll do the same this year. I think we'll get promoted again this year.
1: How's it going so far? Oh, we don't kick off till August. Season starts in August. Oh, sorry. So you're talking about the the year coming? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Fine. So season starts off in August. How many how many teams in the league? Twenty. Okay. Okay. So it's a busy year. Yeah. I mean, we'll we'll have
0: 38 uh, home and away games in the league. We'll be in the FA Cup, the FA Vars, the County Cup, and the. So we'll be in four cups as well.
1: Do you go to every game?
0: No, because I'm away. I I go to every game when I'm home. So when I'm about, I go to every game and nearly every game of our ladies team, um, which we can talk about as well. Um, But I have to travel to do the podcast and work, and so I miss some. But we stream our games online, so we pay the cost to stream it, and. so I'm watching the stream sometimes. And, but what I'll do with that is I'll have a meetup. I mean, there's one time in LA, I, I organized a meetup for a game. It was a 7 a.m. kickoff. I got this pub to agree to stream it. 60 people turned up. Yeah, 60 people. More people turned up in LA to watch a stream and would come to watch our games in person when I first took over the team. And so what we've managed to do is we've managed to kind of like captivate the Bitcoin community. Not all of it. Some of them like, well, what's this bullshit be? But a, a large percentage have gone, this is actually cool. This is a cool idea. And they, they back it. Yeah. yeah. We you know, I think at the best we had a thousand people watching a live stream. Of Bedford. <laughs> <Yeah>. Of Bedford. <laughs> of, Bedford. <laughs> of Bedford. And and so somehow I've put my little town on the map with a, it was funny, I went to the Bitcoin conference and you see people walking around it. We've got t shirts that literally just say Bedford on. And I'll see somebody, I'll go and talk to them, and like, Hey, how you doing? He's like, Yeah, yeah, what's your name? i they'll be like, Oh yeah, I'm John from Texas. So John from Texas is walking around advertising Bedford. It's so <laughs> surreal, but it's 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 an amazing thing they've they've bought into the idea and I really think we do I think we can get in the football league that's amazing
1: yeah so who's your team so I suppose growing up growing up I supported Man United so that's that's the team but my dad was a West Ham fan all right okay and so West Ham was the was the other team that we supported when it was obviously not in the Grand Stadium it is now but down at Upton Park They're in the Europa final this <clears> Wednesday they are yeah I'm actually in Prague. Are you coincidentally? Yeah. You gonna see it?
0: Well, I want to, but the tickets online—I've been looking like twelve hundred quid. I'm like, right, come on, twelve hundred quid. Yeah,
1: I'm gonna see if I can if I can get one for a couple hundred quid outside the stadium. I'll go. Yeah, then it's worth going. But to see to see you know football evolve over the course of the last <coughs> the last few years and see Man City come through and dominate the way they are and see Chelsea do so badly and see the, the swings. Let me tell you the business case for this. So I think we've been very
0: fortunate with what's happened with uh, Ryan Reynolds and Wrexham. Because, and, there's, and there's another thing, Ted Lasso. Mm-hmm. Ted Lasso has done more for people understanding football in America than almost anything. Really? Yeah. They, it gave it a face and a personality. Uh, and, and so a lot of, a lot of people, Americans I talk to now about it, they're like, oh, you're, so you're like Ted Lasso? I'm like, well, no, he's a manager and I'm a chairman. I'm like <laughs> the lady. But anyway, um, but if you want to buy a Premier League team, You have to be a billionaire. Chelsea was at four billion. I mean, if you wanted to buy Brentford, I bet I bet it would be hundreds of millions now. Mm -hmm. But other people want to get involved in football, and and so what Ryan Reynolds and uh, Rob Acaveni did, they highlighted non-league football. Mm -hmm. They highlighted two things: one that's fun, two that's competitive, and three that anyone can get involved. So I I'm predicting now we're going to get a wave. I think I heard about The Rock is interested in South End. I think we're (laughs) going to see a wave of this stuff. And us as Rail Bedford will get to ride that wave as well, whereby I think there'll be a lot more focus now on, long, on league football. And I, yeah, it's brilliant. And, and we, we get a lot of criticism. You know, the people are like, oh, you're just about the money. You don't understand long, long league football. And I just turn around to them. Firstly, if they're from Bedford, I say, well, I had 150 people come in for an event I put on the last game of the season and came to the game. They stayed at Bedford hotels. They went to Bedford pubs. They went to restaurants and they spent money in the local town. So this is good for our local town. If you're worried about us playing players more, well, it means we're playing exciting winning football. So people are flying in and want to see that. Also, those players who are getting paid are spending money in the town. So everything we're doing has an economic be- benefit for mm-hmm. Bedford. And even if you're not in Bedford, you don't like what we're doing. Well, we we just supplied new kits for 300 boys who play for Bedford Park Rangers last year. This year, we're about to supply kits for 250 girls. We have a hardship fund. We're providing money for people to go into coaching. So we're doing lots of stuff for the local community. So, yeah, find an issue with what we're doing. We're, we're, what What is it that we're doing wrong?
1: Yeah, I mean, there there isn't anything. And then you've only got up the road, you've got Luton as well that have been promoted. So there's that that story as well that goes with that, haven't you?
0: Unbelievable. You know? From non-league into the Premier League, what is it, eight years? Yeah. Unbelievable. It's amazing
1: what they've it done. It seems nuts. I mean, I remember as a kid Luton being... When I remember as a kid Luton being... Um, Astro Turf. Yeah. Okay. Have they still got no kind of No,
0: no. First so... game I ever went to was at Luton. At yeah. Road. I went to see Liverpool at Luton. My dad always promised me and we went and it was a nil-nil draw.
1: <laughs> well, it was, it was this ball that bounced really high. Yeah. And it's like that. I think they were the first team in the country that had an Astro Turf, I think.
0: Yeah, and it was proper Astro. Not like the 3G kind of fake grass pitches we have now.
1: It, it was just basically a
0: thin... It was yeah. horrible. <laughs> I, oh, I think Oldham were the other one who had one as well at the time. Did they? Yeah.
1: So yeah, Luton were that team that were kind of like all those years ago in the first division. And then to see them come up and rise, and then then obviously the Ryan Reynolds and the Wrexham story and stuff, that's that's romantic, isn't it? You know, that's that that, that appeals to all parts of our personality. And you think about most movies. What, what a movie is made of? What's the construct? It's like there's there's the twin peaks, there's the, there's the climb, there's the fail, there's the second climb. Okay, you've got the three counterparts. You've got obviously your villain, your hero, and your sage. And they and they all play a part in the movie. And you know, karate kids the greatest example. You've got yep. Mr. Miyagi, you've got Cobra Kai, and you've got Daniel's son. You bring those aspects together, you know, he learns, he learns to do it, he goes through his training and when you bring the romance to that as well it's like you're fighting for the you're fighting for the underdog aren't you? you you want the underdog to win and so as bedford get their investment from you and their support from you you're going to have this underdog that you're going to want to win you know you're going to want to win and you want a fairy tale story that goes with that
0: but look at the benefits of it as well so okay let's look at newcastle as a great example um the, i mean <laughs> the fa have got a lot to answer for with their fit and proper persons test i th- personally i think it's an absolute scandal that uh by virtue of whatever uh loopholes they've done uh the Saudi government essentially bought a football team this is the same government who murdered Jamal Khashoggi um yeah you know, at fault for endless human rights abuses in Yemen and they're sport washing the entire nation not just with that with the Saudi league I hear Karim Benzema's now going there Messi's gonna go there they've got Ronaldo spending hundreds of millions um They've created the Live Golf Tour. I mean, to me, it's just it's just gross. It's it's the wrong side of football. Look at Man City. Man City. We know everybody knows they've broken the uh, the financial fair play rules. What they're going to do now is wrap the FA up in long legal arguments and outspend them. I mean, it's gross. What? Yeah, the football might be great, but what benefits have come off the back of that? This is just rich people from rich countries playing rich person games. Okay, now let's look at Wrexham. That's a rich person in. Ryan Reynolds buying a non-league team. They're building a new stand there. They've got full capacity. They've got new crowds coming in. Those people are coming into Wrexham spending money. I mean, Wrexham's mm. a deprived area itself. They've lifted Wrexham. They put Wrexham on the global map. Amazing. Luton Town. Probably are going to have a terrible time in the Premier League next year. But they're going to make more money next year than they've made in the last 17 years. They need a new stadium. That new stadium is going to be $70 million, 100, whatever it's going to be cost. If they come and don't sign any players that one year in the Premier League is going to pay for that new stadium. Luton will get a new stadium. That's great. Kenilworth Road.
1: Yeah, they're going to it move is, out.
0: Yeah. yeah, Kenilworth Road. They're going to get a new stadium and that one year in the Premier League is going to pay for that. Whatever we do in Bedford, it's going to raise up our town. And so all this money that's going to the Premier League, going to Manchester City, and honestly, I, I couldn't I couldn't care anymore. I care about non-league football and and, and I'm new to it. Like anyone listening go, you didn't care. About, no, I didn't care before. I was sucked into the Premier League and everything. Now I've got a team and I understand the benefits that it can have to the local community. I want non-league teams to do well. I want as many rich people as possible to come and buy non-league teams. Even if it makes our life harder, come and do it and inject that money into local towns, into working class communities, into d- deprived areas. And let's just get more people playing football, more people involved. I-, I absolutely love it. And it couldn't be a better reflection on where I think society should be compared to, the likes of your Newcastles and your Man Cities and all that gross stuff.
1: <laughs> mate, Bro. you've got such a fantastic story. I, I, you're the kind of person I'd, I, I would like to have as a mate. You well, know, there, there, there's well, goodness in you. You've been through some pain. You've been through some struggle. You've got empathy. Well, we are mates, aren't we? Yeah, well, I'd like to think so. I mean, if I come out to Dubai... You're very welcome I'll to come, come out Dubai. to Dubai. Yeah. Come out to Dubai. Have you been there before?
0: No, I have flown through. I went to Mauritius once, and I flew through it. You've not been. To, you haven't been to Dubai. No, I should, you know, my problem is, I like going to. I like going to go into weird places, like India or Venezuela or Cambodia. I like to go to yeah. completely wild and different places. Dubai for me is. If I went to Dubai, it's because I, I want pure luxury and. Waited on hand of it. that's why
1: why i would go to dubai the crypto world is going to center there though isn't it with the Vara licenses and uh yeah
0: I, I mean i've i've seen a lot that that's been going on there a lot of it'll be shit coin-y. but but I, I mean if there's bitcoin stuff happening i'll go there. i should go there i've just i've not had the reason to because it's not the kind of place i go to on holiday mm-hmm. yeah I, I like little ventures like me and kids with me and the kids we went to thailand and flew to chiang mai hired a car and fl- drove up to the burma border mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing i like doing Dubai, I'd, I'd get a bit lost. I think I'd be a bit like, what do I do here? I know there's loads to do, but it's it's not the stuff I want to do on holiday. But I'll come out. I'll, come out I'll you. challenge you to
1: that. Hey, listen. If you come out, I'll, I'll take you and I'll show you a different, different side to that country.
0: And I bet I will. I bet I'll have a lot. I bet I'll go up the Burj Khalifa and <laughs> ride dune buggies and go skiing. I'll be like, yeah, actually, this is amazing. But it, I don't know. It's just, it's not what I I do for a holiday. Yeah. And and for me it's a holiday destination. But look, we, we can be mates. Well I think we are mates now.
1: Cool. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I thank you so much for coming on the show today, mate. I, I genuinely I could sit and talk to you for the next couple of hours. You're a great fun guy.
0: Well, anytime you want, mate, I'm uh, happy to do this again. You just give me a shout. Maybe maybe we'll do it in Dubai. There, there you go.
1: go. All right, man. Thanks for coming on the show, Pete. Cheers, mate. I love that. Cool.
0: That was great. How long did we go for? I don't know. Felt like about an hour. Around twenty-four.
1: Did we go around twenty-four?
0: Yeah, and we had that little five minutes at the start.